Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. This bonus episode of the podcast is part of the Working Through It series, a seven-part multimedia experience of curated content to help us work through this time of tremendous personal and organizational change. You can see all of this content at culturefirst.com slash working through it. And make sure you subscribe so you can get all of this delivered to your inbox. All right, let's get started. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Kim. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Awaken, which provides interactive diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops. I'm working through it by really turning inward and trusting my inner voice and working through that and getting a lot of help from my community and my therapist. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture First podcast. The third part of the Working Through It series looks at the topic of uncertainty. Society at large is in a state of justifiable unrest. There's sudden cash flow problems, broken lines of communication, layoffs, or even market collapses. And these are just some of the events that are currently impacting our work that are giving us a deep sense of frustration right now, as we're all working in the midst of a global pandemic. Now, each of these topics is something that I could have discussed on the podcast, but they're not going to be what I'm focusing my time on today. Episodes five and six in the Working Through It series We'll be focusing on the uncertainty that arises when we don't address conversations about race, politics, equity, and belonging in the workplace. To create a better world of work, we have to create a better world, full stop. So these conversations, I hope, leave you with the courage to have the conversations that need to be had to reduce the uncertainty that your employees might be facing inside of your organization. So my guest for this episode is Michelle Kim. Michelle is the co-founder and CEO of Awaken. Michelle is an activist, diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate, keynote speaker, and one of the leading writers on diversity on Medium. Now, the Awaken website has a tagline that really speaks to me. We create compassionate space for uncomfortable conversations. It's a poignant reminder to me to lean into uncomfortable conversations and do so with compassion. Now, in this episode, you'll hear Michelle and I talk about the importance of leaders who are educating people during this time being fairly paid for their time, effort, and expertise, whether these are the trainers that you're bringing in or your EIG leaders. Michelle wanted listeners of this show to know that she requested Coltramp to make a donation to the Transgender, Variant, and Intersex Justice Project in lieu of a payment to awaken for her time today. Coltramp has made a donation of $2,500 to the TGI project, and I want to thank Michelle for her leadership and generosity. All right, so let's get straight into my conversation with Michelle. So there's one question that I like to ask all guests, and it's, what do you say to a 10-year-old who asks you, what do you do for work, Michelle? That's such a good question. (laughs) Um, I would say right now, 
to a 10 year old um, that I am trying to help make sense of what's going on and to develop courage in people to say the things that need to be said. Yeah, it's a question that uh, when most people kind of hear, they're like, oh, and it's like, it's such a fascinating age. And, um, but when asking this question today, I, I'm seeing it in a bit of a different light because um, I'm not sure if you saw it, but I saw footage of this young girl. I think she's like seven years old um, protesting and like the determination in her eyes. And she was saying no justice, no peace, like left me with a lot of mixed emotions because part of me was like fired up by like how much spirit and passion she had. The other part of me just felt sad that like a young girl needed to be marching for a more just future at such a young age. So although I always ask this question, I ask it, I guess, with a bit of a different weight than I, I normally do, because I think our children are growing up a bit too fast at times. Yeah, and I appreciate you naming that. And I also want to just clarify that that young girl in the video is a black girl, right? And mm -hmm. I think that disproportionate amount of work and emotional trauma that the young black people are going through is something that we all need to pay attention to. And like you said, some young people are being asked to grow up way too quickly. Um, I've heard a statistic um, that on average, black young people are seen as uh, four years older than they really are. Um, so when we look at the criminal justice system or look at the school um, policing system, right, how people get punished, you see much more punitive um, actions being taken on our young people of color, uh, especially black and brown young people. So that distinction is so important, right? Because it's, it's not that um, all young people are having to do that, but particularly that young person had to be a part of this movement as a person belonging to the movement that is for and led by. Yeah. And when you brought that up, I was reflecting on another picture I saw, which was a um, young uh, black, he looked about maybe seven or eight, eight, eight years old boy. He said, when do I change from being like cute and adorable to a threat? Yeah when I think back about my youth and my childhood, and I think that's why I'm wanting to do so much work and education and do whatever I can right now. It's like growing up in Australia, it was just like a very different experience. And Australia's got a lot of work to do as well, which I'm, why I'm glad what we're seeing happening around the world is not just only happening in the United States. What we're seeing is it's a global conversation about inequality. And, and in Australia, we have so much to do as well. And just seeing some of those, those pictures that, which I'm, I know we'll, we'll touch on more. Um, yeah. It's been a, um, a heavy seven days, especially as someone who's living in this country, not originally from here, trying to wrestle with it and do my part. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also seen the global uh, protests that's happening around the globe. And I think that's just so um, important and reassuring that so many people are paying attention. And also the fact that anti-Black racism is a global thing, right? It doesn't just happen in the U.S., and there's historical context that we need to pay attention to here. And in Asia, there is an increasing amount of violence towards black people. So I just wanna make sure that people are paying attention to all the, all the ways in which anti-black racism manifests, not just in the US, but globally as well. Before we dive too much into the kind of the main questions I wanted to have a conversation with you about, I also just wanted to do finally check in at the human level first. So firstly, a big thank you for like, taking the time out right now. And for those who, who don't know you, and hopefully by the end of this, they'll know you very well and know more about your team and your work. But you know, you're, you're the CEO of a small business operating during a pandemic that has been inundated with requests for help. 
only weeks after DE&I budgets and roles were potentially cut due to an economic downturn, and you're a female queer person of colour who's speaking with me during Pride Month. Yes. <laughs> you captured my life in a nutshell. Um, yes, it's been a lot. So, you know, the pandemic hit, we had to pivot our entire business to go virtual, right? We were doing all in-person workshops. And so it was a, a huge pivot and, and shift for our business and retraining our facilitators to be comfortable delivering workshops virtually and not half-assing that either and doing it really well um, and creating good content that is virtually friendly. Um, to the pandemic, of course, and the worries that our team had around their health and their families um, and the economic downturn, of course, and companies slashing their DEI budgets, unfortunately, is still, I think, happening. Um, and uh, then the, the series of really traumatic news of Black folks getting killed by the police. Um, and yes, it's Pride Month and uh, I'm queer and I tweeted something around how I don't want to see any companies posting rainbows and unicorns right now um, if it's not centering the stories and the actions that we need to be doing for Black people, right? And there are Black people within the LGBTQ plus umbrella. There are Black trans people who've been leading this movement. So I think it's really important for us to focus on that. But yes, it's been a lot. Um, and we are now getting a huge surge of uh, contact requests from companies wanting us to come in and do training, anti-racism workshops. Um, and it's, it's reassuring, but also I am very cautious about this type of sudden surge because just a few weeks ago, we were seeing the opposite, right? People cutting off um, DEI teams, laying them off or cutting the budget. And I uh, just did a blog post about how I want people to take a breath and actually think about what it is that they want and how can they commit to this truly for the long run, not just in this moment and reacting to this. And I think there's a lot of uh, performative allyship going on and it could be from good intentions too, right? It could be coming from a good intention place. And I want us to be a little bit more critical about how we engage with this work. Um, one thing that I, you know, financially what our company is doing is we're actually not accepting new clients right now because we think that it's important for us to center the voices of black people and there are plenty of black dei leaders who are doing this work and willing to do this work with companies so we're actually referring all of the new businesses to them and just working with our existing clients who we have a relationship with the ones who showed up before they were kind of like the CEO right. said, uh, are we doing anything about this right now? So, that's right. Yeah. That's, and we'll definitely touch more on that. So th there's an article that I wanted to center a lot of this conversation on that you wrote. And it's an article that has been shared many times inside of culture amp many times on Twitter and LinkedIn. And it really, it struck a chord for a lot of people because I think it helped answer or give inspiration to the people who were shying away from conversations. And when, um, I feel when I think about operating under uncertainty, uncertainty is sometimes associated with fear and we having seeing a lack of action due to fear. And I think, so the article that you wrote really helped capture that. And it was titled, How to Manage Your Teams in Times of Political Trauma. And it was published on September 4, 2017. Now, if people are saying that 2020 feels like a decade, then 2017 feels like a lifetime ago. And unfortunately, too many of us didn't get the memo back then, and we still find ourselves needing to read it again. And there were some questions that you sort of outlined 
um, that managers and leaders were coming to you with? And I just wanted to kind of repeat them and then kind of see whether these questions have changed. So the questions that managers and leaders were coming to you with was, I feel like I should say something, but I don't know what to say. I don't want to open up a can of worms. I don't want to alienate some people by talking about my political views. And I feel like talking about politics at work is inappropriate. So how has that conversation changed in the over a thousand days since then? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's changed much. And I think that's why this article is now resurfacing and is being read by so many people again. And I think the context around the actual issues that were that felt urgent at the time um, maybe shifted a little bit, but uh, you know, police brutality against black people have been has been ongoing, right, for many, many, many years. And so I think this article and the the central fear that people have around, I feel like I should say something, but I don't quite have the words for it, also stems from the fear that you're talking about around, you know, I don't know the right words to use in this moment. And I don't want to put my foot in my mouth by saying something wrong and causing additional harm. And I think it's coming from a good place. And I think it's coming from a a place of not having practiced um, this type of you know, check-ins or building relationships, or this is kind of turning into uh, highlighting the lack of real authentic relationships that we have in the workplaces where we can't, we are so paralyzed by being perfect and uh, making mistakes that we haven't allowed for our, uh, our relationships to allow for that kind of vulnerability and risk-taking. Yeah, I was reflecting on that um, with someone recently about one of the privileges that I have actually at being a culture amp for over five years is I've had like five years of relationship building with people that I've got to like go like slowly, like as each new hire came on to get to get a chance to know them. And I would always try to reach out to new hires, even if they weren't on my team to go like human check-in first, like, who are you? Like, what's your story? Why are you here? And then my ability to show up and do work for them and like help and support them once you know a little bit more about their story is so critical. And I think, you know, it's very hard to reach out with one of these questions that might be anxiety inducing about what's happening politically. If you don't really feel like you know anything about this person. So like, if we don't know each other as humans first, I think that might potentially stop people from actually having these conversations that we should be having in the workplace. Totally. And I think there's also this trust that if I mess up, uh, that this person is going to give me feedback on it. Right. And I think that's really important that we don't actually build that kind of trust or resilience for uh, this conversation to happen more organically in the workplace. Right. Because we are afraid that if I cause harm, um, then I'm going to be called out in a way that makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I don't know how to deal with that. Right. And I think people need to be able to take in difficult feedback, whether it is publicly being called out as a CEO for saying something that is not aligned with what needs to be said, or uh, using the wrong words and somebody getting really upset about that. Those are expected outcomes. If you're doing this work over time, you can't be perfect all the time. And we are, language is always evolving, right? So we need to actually, you know, build that resilience and some thick skin to be able to try it make some mistakes and to be called out and be open to learning. I think where the trust breaks down is when you are called out and your defenses go up and you start attacking the other person who gave you the feedback, no matter how that feedback was delivered. Mm. I think that resilience for us to be able to listen to that feedback and calm our defenses and thank them for actually educating you in that moment, I think is really important. But often I see leaders, especially senior leaders, kind of uh, 
uh, retracting and, and going back into their shells if they've been out there and they get called out once and they feel like, well, you know what? I tried, didn't work. I got called out and they don't appreciate my good intention. So I'm just not going to do it again. And I see that so often happening again and again at the company level, at manager levels, at just, you know, friends level too, um, where people just don't want to be wrong or don't want to be thought of as ignorant. And that becomes the bigger concern for them rather than the well-being of the people that they're wanting to support. Yeah. Like if your first response is getting triggered by that feedback that you're trying to do something and then you center it on you and go, well, I'm not doing that again. Like imagine how the other person feels who not only is going through whatever the situation is, you know, political race, and they not only have to have the courage to show up at work right now, but then also to give you the feedback only for that person to shut down. That's right. Doesn't make me feel good that there's conversations like that happening in the workplace, but we're, we're going to get there. We're going to, and one of the ways that we get there is you wrote some tips and actionable, actionable strategies for leaders. And I want to repeat those and kind of see um, what's changed since because, and I think some of these are still consistent. So like acknowledge what is happening, check in with your team, Reduce or redistribute labor or emotional burden. Care for your team as people, not just as workers. Host safer discussion spaces. Develop a formal response as a leadership team and get support for yourself. And I'd love to know, like, which of these actions do you think managers are continuing to struggle with? Is there, is there one where it's like, we can mm-hmm. do the formal response as a leadership team, you know, all right, we've got that. And, you know, we'll say that we'll redistribute labor. But like, is it is one of these where you're like, you know what, leaders continue to like get this one wrong? Uh, all of them. <laughs> I think people get stuck at different places, right? So I think yeah. people get stuck at even the acknowledgement part. Um, I think now we're seeing so, sort of this unprecedented amount of statements coming out from companies. And even that, I think, sometimes can feel a little bit icky. Because uh, I think I see some companies just doing this boilerplate acknowledgement without any action or teeth behind it, right? So what does it mean for you to stand with Black people right now if you don't have any Black employees or any initiatives to increase representation at senior leadership level? What does it mean if all of your Black employees feel like this is a toxic workplace? You know, just just putting out a company-wide statement alone, especially external-facing one for PR, is just not um, what I think of as real allyship. So I think the acknowledgement part in and of itself is a challenge to do it in a way that feels authentic and actually useful. Um, And I I do this work with a lot of managers. I think it's important for us to empower managers to do this with their teams because you don't feel inclusion and equity at the company level if you're working there. You really feel that at the team level, right? If you don't feel the daily interaction that you have with your coworkers or your manager is one of respect and equity and fairness, you're not going to think anything of it from the the company-wide statement perspective, right? It just feels hollow. So I think there's that cognitive dissonance for a lot of employees of color, especially Black people right now, where they're seeing marketing stuff happening at the company level. PR statements are going out, company town halls are happening, but during their day-to-day interactions, they're not feeling supported because their direct manager or their teams are not quite getting it. So I think acknowledging what is happening is a first place where managers start to drop the ball because, you know, maybe they think that it's okay for them to not say anything because a company said something on their behalf. 
um, and they don't also have the words to be able to acknowledge what's happening, especially if they're not black. Right. And I think, you know, again, people get stuck with the language part. That's why when I wrote this um, blog post, it was important for me to provide some sentence starters that people can use or not, you know, perfect and probably not um, fitting for all, you know, uh, workplaces, but somewhere that you can start and make your own. Checking in with your team, I think, is also where people are a little bit shy uh, about how to do. Um, I think there's also different ways of doing it. And uh, I think there's right now a lot of noise and confusion around, wait, should we check in or should we not check in? Because I think now people are saying, stop checking in with your Black friends because they are tired and they don't have the energy to respond to you. And if you've never had a real relationship with them, don't just show up right now because uh, that's something that you've been told to do by an Instagram post, right? So I think there's a lot of um, confusion around what is the right thing to do in this moment. I put that in air quotes because I think we need to understand that all of this is contextual and people-based. It depends on the person you're talking to. It depends on the relationship that you have with your team and your coworkers who are Black or who are impacted by this disproportionately. And so, you know, the check-in strategy is also really uh, difficult and nuanced for some people. And I think we end up overthinking some of these things, too, when we read so many different things and we don't want to cause harm. And uh, uh, checking in with people is something that can feel daunting almost because I think as managers, we are trained to problem solve. We're trained to give advice and to uh, remove roadblocks. And unfortunately, with something like this, where we're talking about systemic institutional oppression of Black people that has gone on for centuries, um, we don't have the solution for that. There's no way that we can solve for that for our Black employees right now. So sometimes people don't want to open up that can of worms. That's what they would think that they're doing by checking in with people, because they don't have the answers to their pain. But you know, I think it is a responsibility of all leaders to be able to create space to have your employees tell you what they need in this moment. And you can do that by checking in and you don't have to do that in a way that's putting additional burden on them, right? So I think one of the concerns is, well, what if they don't wanna talk about it? And that's totally fine and you should expect that kind of answer, um, but just offering that you are there to be a resource. And because you have the organizational power to be able to provide them with some space to breathe, whether that is redistributing their labor, um, but with consent, don't do it without asking them first. Don't make assumptions that they don't want that project, right? So ask them first on what they need. And also um, there's a lot of uh, ERGs being tapped to do work right now, employee resource groups and black affinity groups. If you see your team members being called to do that work, check in with them to make sure that that's what they actually wanna do and have energy for and go to bat for them so that they can get compensated for it. I think yeah. these are all things that people can do. Um, and especially as managers, there's a lot of power there. ERGs being not something that you do as a volunteer job on top of your day job and something that's actually, if it's valuable to the business, if it's something that they want to invest in, something that their time's actually, like it's built into, you know, 20% of your time in your role, if you are in an ERG is spent there and that's fine. Like we're not asking you to do that on top of, of your job. And, and I think what you said about like, you're not going to solve this. You're not going to solve, you know, hundreds of years worth of, you know, systemic problems as a, as a manager of a four person team, but you can show up and just say like, you know, I'm here. Do you want to talk about this? Do you not want to talk about this? What, what's going on? And I think 
the the race to put something out publicly uh, can have a lot of negative effects. You know, if you're from a you know marginalized group and you're seeing a public statement about your experience at work, but no one's even asked you about your experience at work. Like don't race to put that out to the world. If you're not even going to have the conversation with your employees first. That's right. Yeah. And I think DNI for so long, especially in the corporate space and in tech, particularly from what I've seen, there is this external facing component to it, right? That we do this well. So this attracts talent, this attracts um, uh, the favorability uh, from the, the users and the market that you care about this more externally. But I think that's, you know, the wrong place to start essentially is I think what you're saying. And I, I agree with you that we actually need to turn more inward and let the DEI uh, accomplishments actually show out organically from the people inside the company not from your PR team, not from your marketing team, but it should show out from your employees. Um, but so few companies are focused on actually cultivating that internally because they're so quick to make a statement externally that doesn't actually have any foundation internally. I think we just touched on this, but I think um, you know, for far too many underrepresented people at organizations around the world, when something happens in society that impacts them, and it impacts not only just them personally, but also their ability to show up and do the work and like perform at the level that they want to perform on any other given day, right? One of these things might happen. Either nobody talks to them about it due to potentially ignorance or avoidance, or uh, people are coming to them and expecting them to educate others about what's happening on behalf of the whole community that they represent. If there's someone listening who's been on the receiving end on either one of those situations, um, what advice do you give? That's a really tough spot to be in, um, especially if you're an underrepresented, marginalized person in the workplace, and especially if you're a Black person in this situation right now. I, I can't imagine the pressure that they are under to have to perform, especially in this economy, right? Everybody's also worried about layoffs. So we're all, all sort of putting up this front that we are okay and we're producing at a uh, 100%, if not more, um, uh, level that we were doing before the pandemic hit. Um, and I want to just put that responsibility on the managers once again. I, I really feel like the burden needs to shift from the individual to the leadership team um, in making sure that they are providing that air cover. They are the ones who are, without being asked, explicitly providing people with the permission to not be at their 110% right now. What does that look like, right? And how are they making sure that they are not penalized for taking care of themselves in this moment? And it's a really tough thing for a, you know, individual contributor or your direct report to bring up. How do you bring up to your manager that, hey, I just can't do this work right now, right? If you have that relationship, great. But if you don't, that's a really tough place to be. And this is where it may be useful to leverage folks that you trust who may be your allies who can show up for you in this moment to nudge the manager to bring that up uh, for their entire team. And, uh, you know, there are, I think, articles that could be shared. So it's more of an indirect conversation. But I think, you know, in an ideal world, that conversation should be directed by and led by the managers. But in, an, in a non-ideal setting where, you know, you are dealing with a manager who may be oblivious to this, um, I hope that there is safety and there's trust to be able to bring that up. But I also, I, I don't know if that's the case for most people right now. And I think the 
fear of negative repercussions around not being at their 100% is so great, especially with this pandemic, that I, um, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a big concern. And there might be organizations who are like, you know what, we are going to hold space. We are going to hold a town hall. We are going to commit to actually having a conversation, even if we get parts of it wrong, even like we're going to do it and they want to address it, be an open dialogue with their employees. Um, one thing that they might not think about it as much, which you've written about, which I think is so important, is that it's important for them to know whose needs is the session really for and whose experience are, are you centering on? And I spoke to someone about this recently and they said that they held like a town hall about this and it ended up being a bit of a disaster and it was mainly white people talking about why they don't understand what's happening or like, why is this like, why is this even important? And then it's like, hang on, if this is a session for white people to understand this, then like that is not who you should be like centering on right now. So like, why is it really important if you are as a manager with a small team versus a whole of company town hall to really know like, who are you actually centering this conversation on? Yeah, I think that's such a good example. Um, and without really understanding who you're centering first, there's a lot of harm that you can cause. Because think about if you're in a town hall and you are talking as a white person, as a white CEO, you're sort of talking about your own own experience, how you're devastated and how you want um, to educate yourself and centering everything about you, 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 you. Imagine what that could feel like for people who are watching that and who's, who's having to witness your pain on top of their pain not being processed. And I think, you know, this is also advice for managers and just people who are not black. And this is something that I've been doing on my own and with my own community of Asian American folks. Um, We need to learn how to hold space for each other and for ourselves so that it doesn't spill over to becoming additional burden for black people to handle for us. Um, And I think there are sometimes this desire and need for us to be validated by people that we're trying to support and that validation becomes more important than the actual work itself. And I think we need to watch out for that too. So if we are doing all these things and we don't get a thank you or we don't get a pat on our back, that's okay because we're not doing it for a pat on the back, right? We're doing it for the, the, the justice that needs to be there and removing the harm and barriers that black people face on every day. That's the work that we're doing together. Um, and so if you are, you know, wanting to take or make a statement, really think about or wanting to create a space for conversations, always go back to the question of whose needs are we really centering and prioritizing and what does that look like as opposed to centering the needs of white people to be educated. And there is a need for that space, but if that's the space that you're creating, just be explicit about it to be explicit about, hey, we're going to create a space where we're going to educate non-Black people. So Black folks, you don't have to come. Um, if you want to, you can, optionally, but this space is designed to educate white people on what's going on. And that space is needed too, but don't, don't um, frame it as something that you're doing for all employees. Like knowing who you're doing the work for and also making sure that the container is actually very clear. So like at CultureAmp, we have our ERG. And if you identify as a member of that ERG, then you can be part of it. And that's like a private kind of Slack channel and like they gather. But then we have like ally or activist groups. And that's for anyone else who wants to be part of that conversation. 
And, you know, it's a very different container, you know, for those who are in it versus those who want to learn about it or like, you know, show up and educate themselves or do the work. And, you know, if you just try to create one container for everyone, like, I think that's where a lot of companies are getting in these messy situations. And probably why you're getting so many inbound inquiries right now, because <laughs> it's not only because they need training, it's because something they've just done something and it's like that did not go well. And now we need to try to fix it. That's right. That's right. And, you know, how wonderful would it be if we can, we, if we are prepared to show up in this moment, because we've been doing this work all along. Right. And so I think that's something to think about for companies is why, is this urgent for us now? Why is it becoming urgent now when it was always urgent before, right? This work has always been important. Police brutality has always been happening. How do we make sure that we don't forget that this needs to also continue beyond this moment of crisis uh, and so that we can continue to build this muscle so that we can continue to show for our people. In terms of the the container that we create, I'll share a couple of tips uh, so that people can really understand what that space can look like. And one, the the goal of the space needs to be clearly defined. Is it a uh, processing space? So a lot of folks are coming to us right now wanting to just create space to have a conversation. Um, But what is the goal of that conversation? Is it to provide a space for Black folks to process their feelings and to be able to openly talk about what they're going through. If that's the case, who do you need to hire for that? It's not probably an unconscious bias trainer (laughs) to come in and help them process what they're going through. Um, Is it a processing space for non-Black people to really understand the emotions that's coming up for them? What do we need to invite all employees to that, right? What's the size of that group? I think depending on the goal, that, that the shape and texture of that conversation is going to shift drastically. And that don't call that a training if it's not, right? And if you're going to do a training, don't just grab onto an unconscious bias training. That's, I know that's the hottest topic in tech and all of corporate America. When it comes to diversity training, we get a lot of requests for that. And right now we're pushing back on any sort of non-explicit uh, anti-Black racism work, uh, workshops. Right. So if you're going to talk about how you want to show up for this moment right now and turn it into a real thoughtful allyship, make sure that you are doing that uh, self-assessment and uh, internal inquiry to understand what is the purpose of this space. Is this just to make us feel better or is it to actually create momentum for action? Yeah, I think that's so critical. And I think if we can pull out those uh, th- th- those free tips for anyone who's about to op- open up that container. It'll hopefully um, allay some of the fear or anxiety about doing it and about being really like, and it's just like any, like any session that, that you create, like going with clear expectations, what are we here to do? Who is it for? And like, don't just, yeah, don't just throw out a question out into the open about this and just hope that you like, like have a, a positive conversation that changes, you know, yeah. So I think yeah. that's where a lot of people get stuck is that, that they think it's one, one question in a team meeting at the start and then they just go on with their work. I'm like, that's not what the container should be. That's right. That's right. And I think we also need to think about what comes after this yeah. conversation, right? Like what happens after a workshop that you just rolled out or after the company statement. So think through two, three steps in advance. Don't just react to a situation and think that that is going to be sufficient 
because that could actually do more harm than good. If you're promising certain things, but the action is not matching, there is a significant amount of cognitive dissonance on the part of the people. So we got to be able to have a holistic approach to all of these conversations. Um, and you mentioned fear and anxiety, reducing that. I think it's, uh, it's hard. And I don't want to overpromise to folks that you're never going to feel anxious once you start doing this work over and over. It's always going to be there, I think, because no one can be perfect in doing DEI work, social justice work. Uh, we are going to make mistakes because everything is evolving and it always will. I think it's important for us to, again, build that resilience for us to show up continuously even when we make mistakes and get called out to be able to accept that, acknowledge that, apologize, and to show up again, um, and to risk being called out again and again and again. And, uh, you know, you'll finesse your approach over time. And there's a lot of resources where we can educate ourselves on what is the preferred words that we can use for certain contexts or for certain groups. So you can uh, get better at that. Uh, without making mistakes all the time, because mistakes do cause harm. And that's why they're, um, uh, you know, I think that's why people are sensitive to making mistakes because they don't want to cause harm. Uh, but if we can practice sitting with that discomfort of perhaps being wrong or perhaps being called out in a very public and shame generating manner uh, and know that we are still in this work because we care so much about the end outcome and not just for other people, but for ourselves, right? DEI is not just for other people. Black Lives Matter is not just for black people. This is a moment where we have to really question what this movement feels, uh, what this movement means for us, right? And I do this work because I truly believe that my liberation is tied to Black people's liberation and trans people's liberation and all of them feeling they are part of this world in a way that feels equitable and um, just. So I think we need to ask ourselves that questions. Why are we doing this? Uh, because otherwise it's going to be a momentary reactive response rather than a long-term sustained one. We've spoken a lot about leaders and managers um, and Angela Davis said that I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. So Michelle, what can you not accept anymore from managers and leaders? Oh, um, performative allyship is something that I get really irked by. Uh, just sort of making everything about ourselves in this moment, I think is a really dangerous trap. So that's something that I hope that folks will really sit with and think about what is performative and what is not. And there's lots of thought leaders um, from the Black community that we should be listening to and centering their voices and amplifying their voices. Um, and I think another thing that I cannot accept, and it's continuing to happen uh, in the corporate space and tech space, is just the dilution of the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the making of social justice work palatable to white people, to people in positions of power. And I think that's where we've, you know, gone to a place where we are as a collective feeling so much fragility because now we're having to use words that we thought were too political or too aggressive in these spaces. And I implore all of us to think about, you know, what would it feel like for us to use words um, that are just 
pure in its definition what we're experiencing. For example, white supremacy, for example, anti-Black racism. What does it feel like for us to hear these words on a corporate podcast, right? And uh, what it would feel like and what would it look like if we can just say those things that need to be said without filtering, without diluting, without whitewashing, so that we can actually address the problem at its core. We could keep talking about this, but uh, we can't just talk about it. We also have to stop and do the work. And I want to be conscious of, of your time. Um, is, is there anything I didn't ask that you would like me to, or is there anything that you would like to add that we didn't get a chance to? Um, just one thing that I would like to add here, and I am conscious about the fact that I am speaking right now as a non-Black person. Um, and I am, you know, Really, I think we need to center and amplify the voices of black people and I want to and I also didn't want to ask black folks to do things without pay Right, mm -hmm. so just let's just be cautious of who we're asking to do this work with and for and when we are asking black folks Especially, you know people who are out there doing this work um, uh, it, as a part of their job, let's make sure that we're compensating them, right? And uh, I want to highlight a few leaders that I follow that I learn from so much. Um, and, you know, many of their names uh, are in my blog post. So please refer to a variety of different things that um, you can find to find the people that you want to follow. Uh, but I just want to appreciate the work of Erica Hart. Um, Leslie Mack, Kimberly Bryan, Tiffany Bell, um, and uh, uh, Rachel Cargill, Rachel Ricketts. These are all folks that people can learn from very easily. They are very, very generous with their content online, and they have links where you can pay them for their labor. Um, so I just want to implore folks to follow Black leaders right now and to learn from them. And uh, question when you are um, learning only from uh, voices that feel comfortable uh, to listen to. Uh, so that's something that I'll leave you all with. I'd love to know what advice do you, do you typically give to others that you've actually found yourself or maybe even a therapist saying back to you during this time in order for you to work through it? Yeah, I think that right now there's a lot of noise and also exhaustion from a lot of folks because there's a lot to do, right? And uh, I feel like there's nothing that I could do that will ever be enough. And I get that response from a lot of our clients, a lot of my team members, and uh, my therapist uh, gives me the best advice, which is to pause and uh, practice compassion for myself and know that, yes, nothing will ever be enough but we are enough in the present moment. And so we all can channel all of our different uh, activism and our frustration, our exhaustion, our rage and anger in different ways and know that we also need to take breaks to sustain that. Uh, so that's the advice that I've been giving to other people that yes, keep going, but also know when you need to pause and take care of yourself and to practice self-compassion so that we can keep going. A big thank you to Michelle Kim for joining me on the podcast today. Now, I'm a big believer in self-care and we've been spending a lot of time in the Working Through It series talking about self-care and why we need to focus on the marathon aspects that we're going through that are helping us build for legacy and not just for currency. But I do want to point out something and it's a reminder for me more than anything right now. If a video, article or conversation that you have consumed leaves you feeling empty 
and that it's wearing you down and you feel the need to switch off and the fact that you can even consider switching off is from a place of privilege. That if you're able to switch off, it's potentially because it's not your community or my community that's being directly impacted right now. For those in that community, there is no switch off moment and there is no switch off button. We all need to stand up, educate ourselves and do the work that's required to create the better world and the better workplaces that we know can exist and should exist. Allyship and activism is not a title that you or I just get to label ourselves with. It's a practice, which means doing the work today, tomorrow, and the next. One of the ways that I'm practicing allyship is joining Minda Hearts when she goes live to talk about the memo. Now, I tune in and I listen. I'm not there to jump in and share my experiences. I'm there to listen and to learn. And the experiences that Minda's community are sharing are about their experience in society and the workplace right now. And it's there where I'm hearing stories of black women saying that no one's talking to them about their experience they're having in the workplace right now. And it's these stories and vulnerabilities that are being shared that are helping me make sure that I'm creating compassionate space for these uncomfortable conversations that are needed. So that's just one way that I'm trying to practice allyship and I encourage you to join me if you can. Um, And if you haven't, please listen to episode 10 of the Culture First podcast where I actually sat down with Minda Hearts to discuss how women of colour can get a seat at the table. So I want to thank Michelle again for joining me on today's episode. And if you want to be part of this conversation with me, then you can use the hashtag working through it as well as the hashtag culture first podcast and tag myself or culture amp because we want to be part of this conversation with you. Now there's plenty more resources about dealing with uncertainty right now at culturefirst.com slash working through it. And I'm looking forward to joining you for my next episode on the culture first podcast.